Good afternoon, or good evening to my friends across the pond. Good evening, Ian. Sunday, good evening, George. Sunday, February 5. Should be a great room today. So before we get into it, uh, as has become our custom, uh, I'd like to review three dates in history, this date in history. I'm adopting a sports uh, theme today. Quite a coincidence, actually. And Ian, I know you're not the you don't count yourself amongst the biggest baseball fans, but I think you'll probably this will even resonate with you. Um, in 1895, Babe Ruth, um, who's considered to be one of the greatest baseball um, players of all time, was born uh, in Baltimore, Maryland. In 1927, he hit 60 home runs, which was a record that stood for 34 years until Roger Maris broke it, subsequently further broken, but. Babe Ruth, born in 1895, and it's kind of ironic. In 1934, Hank Aaron, who broke Babe Ruth's career home run record in 1974. I remember watching as a kid. I was a big baseball fan. Hank Aaron, who broke Ruth's record, who hit 714 home runs in 1974, he broke Ruth's record. It's just kind of funny. Aaron and Ruth born on the same day. And then finally, uh, a more recent event that for all the football fans that are out there, in 2017, six years ago, February 5th, 2017, Tom Brady, then of the New England Patriots, who, by the way, just retired this week for the second and final time, led the Patriots to overcome a 25-point deficit in defeating the Atlanta Falcons. That was an unprecedented uh, comeback, and so it was one of the greatest comebacks ever. So any event, um, so today it's all sports. Enough of that, Ian. They didn't come here to hear about sports, but for my notification, if nobody else is, I look, like looking this stuff up. So Ian, uh, it, yeah, so, so well, Ian, I was going to say it was it was, a, it was a great game, the Brady game, and uh, thanks to anybody that's uh, listening rather than watching the Pro Bowl at the moment. So uh, yeah. uh, there you go, Ian. Is, is, is American football taking a much of a following in London? Oh, yeah. Big following. Yeah. Uh, there's uh, a number of games that are played here every year. And, you know, compared to when I started watching American football in the mid-1980s, uh, it's, uh, it's now a big, uh, it's, a, it's a, a general general interest sport in the UK. Well, maybe you should, uh, maybe in, in this space, if you feel like it or another one, we can talk about European football. So <laughs> I, I, uh, European soccer. Though, yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I, I wish they had more scoring, but that's just me. At any rate, um, 2023 has started off with quite a bang in markets. Um, I've not gotten markets right. I've been on the wrong side of markets. Um, we'll get into your views as well. Uh, you and I have had a chat. Yeah. And we have a pretty good idea what you're saying. And so, Ian, I will um, uh, post up. Um, I'll, I'll yield the floor to yourself. And um, as you're speaking, I will throw up some of your recent, recent tweets so you can rely upon them to uh, outline your thoughts. We have a very good room. I can see um, some of the usual suspects in the crowd, and so um, it should be a lively conversation. So, for those of you that know, don't know Ian, he's become, um, you know, made his Twitter debut earlier this year, I believe, and, and really, you're, you're quite your rooms have been quite well received, Ian. Thoughtful. <laughs> Thank you. You're not a bomb thrower, um, and so when Ian speaks, most people tend to listen. So, without further ado, Ian, let me yield the floor to yourself, and I will post some of your tweets up in the nest as you're speaking. So take, take it away, Ian. Thanks very much indeed, George. And so what George and I have agreed is that I'll, I'll just give an outline of what we're saying to our institutional clients at the current time. 
Um, and then we'll take the conversation where George and where the rest of the room want to go. Um, so like George, you know, I, I've also been too cautious over the last few months, but I still believe from an asset allocation perspective, this is very much too soon to be bullish. You know, I think this is still a bear market rally. And I think the interesting thing is that it is not a risk on rally. It's an everything rally. And that tells you that it's about liquidity. It's not about anything else. And so I know I saw Michael uh, is on the line. Uh, so I'm sure that we'll hear from him. But my question is, how long can that liquidity expansion that has fueled this rally over the last few months be sustained? And where has it come from? Because when you look at the underlying situation, we are still looking at a world that has seen, and it's a global phenomenon, the broadest, fastest and largest rate rising cycle since 1980. Um, I love the uh, intro music. That, you know, that's just the way it is. That's the way it is. And when you get that kind of rate rise environment, the probability of recession globally goes to close to 100%. You know, a lot of our models are putting to that, that recession risk through this year. Um, and you know, we would still hold that. We still think that there's a, a real chance of global economic slowdown. And you're seeing it in a number of the pieces of data. Yeah, there's counter, counter data points to, in the short term. But, you know, what we would want to say is, first of all, beware about the difference between real and nominal. Um, there isn't a, an immaculate disinflation. You know, lower prices do come with a cost. And, you know, that cost is actually that the sales of a lot of the corporates that have been holding up these earnings numbers are going to start coming down. And it's going to be a double whammy because the pricing power is going to be diminished. And also the volumes are going to be coming down because of the lagged effects of those interest rates. And when you take those weaker sales against costs that will remain high, because although inflation Wage inflation is starting to moderate very slowly. You know, it's still rising quite rapidly compared to history. You know, that's an environment where margins get absolutely crunched. So we are still very comfortable forecasting that global earnings will fall between 15 and 20 percent, um, you know, over the course of this year to their lowest point. They might start bouncing by the end of the year, but, you know, uh, probably not, I would think, is, is, is might be my guess, that that might last into 2024. Um, and that, you know, some countries or some areas like the Eurozone, you might see that being even more acute because of the operational gearing, the cyclicality that you see in those economies. I'm still very cautious about the UK and the Eurozone. The other thing that we're very cautious about is financial stress. We still see um, a world where the Fed actually only pivots because, not because inflation comes down, but because they get forced to pivot. They get forced to pivot because unemployment goes up and that unemployment goes up because financial stress has continued to rise. So we are looking at things like the bank lending survey from the ECB last week. Tomorrow, we have the senior loan officers survey coming out from the Federal Reserve. Um, we are seeing stress around the financial institutions. We are seeing stress in the financial markets. 
um, you know, we've seen some really quite uh, acute destruction of wealth over the last 12 months. We're calling this quantitative destruction, the shift from QE, which provided, you know, almost limitless zero interest rate liquidity to a world of QT and interest rate rises, we believe will lead to this quantitative destruction, the systematic unwinding of the institutions and the structures that were built and thrived in a world of zero rates and low inflation. You know, we've seen it with crypto, we've seen it with buy now, pay later, we've seen it with the uh, LDI crisis in the UK. You know, we believe that that is going to impact two key areas in 2023, global housing, and it's also going to move into the corporate credit markets. The key thing, however, is that um, the, well, the main reason why I still remained um, very cautious and defensive, uh, uh, George, is that I just don't think equities are cheap. You know, I don't think they're cheap um, in absolute terms, particularly not after this rally. Um, and that's pretty much around the world. So, yes, I'd even include the eurozone in that. Um, and, you know, they are definitely not cheap against bonds. So in the models that we use, um, and, you know, I think George will post up one of those, that looks at detrended bond equity yield ratios. So what are the yield on bonds relative to the yield on equities? If you detrend that over the last 10 years and look at that relative to the last 100 years of data, you'll find that this is a potentially a once in a generation opportunity to switch out of equities and back into bonds. So, you know, add into that things like the Schiller PE, which at 31 times gives you a, a projected return of between 3% and 5% over the next de decade on an annualized basis. And you, know, you can see why we are still very, very cautious indeed. Um, so we would want to be, you know, uh, maximum underweight equities. I think that is still a very, you know, obviously a very strong view to take, maximum underweight equities. Um, and maximum overweight in cash is what we're recommending to our clients. And, you know, uh, overweight bonds and underweight credit in this environment. And within equities, you know, we'd want to play the much more defensive parts of the market, things like healthcare, utilities, uh, food producers, you know, grocery uh, drugstore type uh, stocks. And we want to avoid the operationally leveraged areas, which would include energy and financials. So, George, that's the kind of summary that we would provide our, um, our institutional clients. And um, then, you know, normally we've got a couple of hundred charts that we can go through to, uh, to, to, to try and explain, you know, why we've got these ridiculous views. Right. That, that's terrific. Ian. And, and we're going to spare the uh, we're going to spare our friends in the room death by uh, PowerPoint. So, uh, Ian, I, I started to put some up. They're not in any particular order. Um, but if you take a look here, um, if you scroll over to the uh, second chart all the way over on the right, there's one um, where um, it's entitled um, Valuations Always Matter. And you've got a graph here of subsequent 10 year return. Um, it's using the Schiller PE and maybe speak to this. What is it you like about this? What do you say to those who, um, 
take issue with the Schiller PE is giving um, is giving false signals. So I, I hope you can see the chart. It's it's, it's your tweet from a few days ago. It's a, the tweet from February second. Yeah, no, that, that's great, George. Thank you very much. Yeah, so I, I you know clearly there are question marks about the Schiller PE. Um, the the pushback that I would say is that you know any of these fundamental valuation metrics um, you know have got their issues. But what I found is the Schiller PE um, actually maps very nicely onto a, a number of other variables. So, you know, the Federal Reserve Board produced their own measure of something called Tobin's Q, which is just the cost of capital for equity, you know, by, versus the cost of, of replacement capital. Um, and, you know, it maps onto this almost perfectly. Um, also, the share of uh, equities in household portfolios, you know, maps onto it very nicely um, as well. So you've got a, a whole range of variables that map onto this and would point to the, the fact that we are still at very extended um, valuations. And bearing in mind that, you know, that share of equities is actually a volume. You know, it also tells you that investors haven't really sold down their positions yet either, which typically we do see in bear markets, George. I think the key thing is that, that you know, for all the theoretical weakness of the, uh, of the Schiller PE, um, as a strategist, I tend to be more of an empiricist. Um, and, you know, the other chart that we put out on that day on the February the 2nd just shows you the very nice straight line um, that if you do monthly returns over the last 70 years, you know, there's a very nice inverse relationship between, you know, where the Schiller PE today and, and 10 year returns, you know, further out. And, you know, that's the, 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 the basis that we've got. You know, I think bear in mind that, that the Schiller PE does reflect also, you know, the degree to which you've got you know, profitability in the economy. You know, you could probably overlay profit margins and profits to a degree as well on this chart, George. So it, there, there's, there's fundamentals behind it. Um, and it does just reminds us that, you know, if you have got to get 31 times current trend earnings to justify where we are today. Um, so, yeah, I, I just think you know, it's, uh, it, it, it's relatively simple. Um, but it's been a pretty good indicator of uh, where where we might go in the next decade. Right. So, 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 Ian, to your point, if you look in the nest, you'll see I just threw it up. It's the it's the it's the graph over on the far left. I believe this is the one you're referring to from February second. It says just a reality check on buying the S and P, and you've got here the Schiller PE against the ten year returns. Is this the chart that you were talking about? Yes. No, so, that sorry. is the one that I'm talking about. Sorry. Right. So that, that's what you're talking about being empiricist. And then if you scroll over one to the right, Ian, this is what you were talking about now. Um, this was a, uh, a tweet you put up on the 3rd. Um, you were talking about the bond equity yield ratio. Is this the one that you were talking about? How? Is it, um, no, that's, a, that's a slightly different story. Um, Got it. Which is, okay. you know, there's, you know, you know, the Schiller PE is, is just looking at the absolute valuation for equities. Right. But, you know, what... Um, one of the things I mentioned in the overview was this chart from February the 3rd. Um, yeah, Ian, let me interrupt you. I, th I think I maybe I had to make myself clear. That's the one I'm referring to. If you look at, yeah. if you look at not, not, the, not, not, not the newest chart, but the next one over from the 3rd, yeah. uh, it, show, it shows the, um, 
I'm on, I'm, on my, I'm on my phone. I don't seem to be able to see it the same. Ah, oh, yeah, I found it now. Yeah. Okay. That is, I think that's, that's what you're talking yeah. about. Where? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe you could speak to this, please. It's quite eye opening. Yeah. So this, you know, this, um, you know, I, I find that you know we should remember that that you know equities are determined not just by the performance of earnings and other macro factors, but also what the alternative uh, assets are that you can access. Um, and so the way that I've always done this for the last 20 or 30 years is looking at bond yields divided by equities yields, whether that's a dividend yield or an earnings yield, doesn't really matter when you take the relatives. And then you but the Z-score is just normalizing it. So how volatile have bonds and equities been over the last three years, five years or 10 years? The longer that you want to look back and the longer that you want to look forward, it makes more sense to use a long detrending. So what we've done is taken you know, the 10-year, uh, today's um, divergence between equity yields and bond yields, and a higher number here is equities being expensive, bonds being cheap. A lower number here is bonds being uh, 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 expensive and equities being cheap. And, you know, what this speaks to is that the rapid rise in equities that we've seen over the last decade, driving down their dividend and earnings yield, um, at the same time that we've now seen bond yields rise very dramatically in the last 12 months. So, you know, relative to the 10 year trend, they've gone up substantially. The combination of those two things has produced um, as big a divergence between bonds and equities that you've seen at any time since just before the tech bubble. So almost a 20 year. This is why I'm saying this is a once in a generation opportunity. And when we've seen these things in the past, you know, so, you know, be that 1980, 1968, you know, the nifty 50 type period um, and 1929. You know, these were periods where you saw a couple of things. First of all, you saw quite often multiple down years for equities. And secondly, the scale of the losses that you saw for equities relative to bonds over the next three to five years averaged between 25% and 75%, George. So, you know, what this shows me and says to me is either bond yields have got a long way to come back down or equity yields um, have got a long way to go up, i.e. equity prices have got a long way to come down. So, you know, we just think that, that equities versus bonds are still very um, expensive indeed. Uh, and, you know, that would also fit, I think, with the, the fourth chart that you've put on about the equity risk premium, if I could just move us to that very quickly, um, which I think was from the 19th of the 1st. Yes, the, yeah, the, the 19th of January, yes. Because, you know, that, this is a, a more sophisticated way. And if people object to using the, uh, the Schiller PE, then there are about 3,000 different objections to using equity risk premium because there's actually 27 different ways of calculating it according to one Fed paper. We use nine yeah. different methods 
and we take the median of those nine different methods. And this is what this chart shows you. But the simple thing here is that the equity risk premium says equities are expensive when the number is lower and they are cheaper when the number goes up. Look at those gray bars, recessions. The equity risk right. premium always goes up in recession, George. Where's it gone in the last three months? Down. Right. Well, that's, I mean, and that's, that's so the end story, basically. Right. So let's just hold that. Yeah. I want to come on to the economy and earnings estimates. I just want you to elaborate for everyone who wants to understand what you're talking about. When you, well, let's go back to the one where yeah. you've got um, uh, the equity, the, um, equity. The, the switch chart, yeah. bond equity. Okay. Just so people understand the, the, the yield ratio. Maybe just understand, explain to me, what, what, what is the equity yield ratio? It's the inverse of the P, I presume, the way you use yes. it. Yes. Is that right? Uh, well, actually, this right. is okay. based on the dividend yield because, you know, it's, okay. uh, the, um, it's easier to get dividend history going back to 1910 than, um, and more reliable than, than earnings yields. But when you but when you um, you mentioned there's so many different ways of calculating this, and some would say, well, gee, the dividend yield is a little bit anomalous because companies more than ever are, re are repurchasing shares. So yeah. look at the total return, yeah. you know, if you took an earnings yield. So, but you said you said there's 27 different ways to do this, and you do nine of them. Um, when you when you tinker with it, do you still come up with the same conclusion? Yeah, you, you know, you can you can use you can use, I can you know we can use pretty much you know, any form of earnings, any kind of dividend models that you like mm -hmm. to use. I still find that equities are not, are not discounting recession and are actually discounting a continuation of Goldilocks. And, right. you know, Goldilocks in terms of profit margins, Goldilocks in terms of earnings growth. Um, and, you know, we just think that that is incredibly optimistic in a world where central banks are determined to keep monetary policy tight enough to really kill inflation um and you know that's uh, you know it, it just seems to me to be anomalous that we are quite so uh, uh markets are still very optimistic about this you know partly because i think they lost so much money last year you know i think there are a lot of investors that that just you know, desperately hoping that, you know, it's very unusual to get a double down year and, um, you know, therefore let's bet against it. Okay. Well, let, let, let's stay with it. Let's go to the economy and uh, earnings. Yeah. Um, that plays into equities. Um, you know, candidly, the economy has held up better than I thought it would have. Um, and probably can be said for a lot of observers. Nevertheless, earnings estimates have been falling. Uh, it's very clear that um, we are certainly in a bear market for earnings. So could you talk a little bit, you mentioned a few minutes ago about how you're quite comfortable in looking at a 15 to 20% decline in earnings this year. Um, how, you know, change at the margin over the last two, three months, how's that been working for you? Been resolute in your view? Yeah. Have things come better than expected, worse than expected? Like change at the margin. So, what, what's so the I think, you know, things are basically coming down in line with expectations. You know, the... If you look at the 2023 earnings expectations, they have come down from 250, roughly, I think, to 223. Um, and you know, the uh, you know the the, our, the trouble is, our expectation is that by the end of this year, they could well be at 200, um, maybe lower than that. But what's happened is that the 2024 numbers have come down by similar amounts. But they are still 10% higher 
than you know, the 2023 figures. So your um, 12-month forward earnings expectations haven't really come down very far. So, you know, that's one of the illusions that's out there in the market. But, you know, historically, if you take the median of the last five U.S. recessions, the earnings decline was about 20 percent. So right. a 20 percent decline in earnings should not surprise anybody. It sounds a really bad number. But if you believe there's going to be a recession, that's the number that's your base. That should be your baseline forecast um, in, in right. our opinion. Ian, maybe let's just go with that a little bit further. So, because you're very you're you're a student of uh, financial history, and when you detrend earnings, um, <laughs> and and you look at the, <laughs> I say, I'm trying to control. I can ah. tell you where you, I can see where you're going, John. <laughs> yeah, this this is like you don't want to do you know, that. I start, I, <laughs> yeah, Ian, I start the sentence. You can finish. You go with it. Yeah, you don't want to. So. <laughs> so it's like my grandfather should never ask a question you don't know the answer to so just to uh review the catechism here on this so speak to you know not all cycles are equal history rhymes doesn't repeat itself the extent to which uh excuse me while i stuff some words in your mouth here (laughs) (laughs) 30 years of knowing you george yeah (laughs) exactly so okay all right so so sorry so let me try the colombo routine instead so, Mr. Hart, I look at this graph here, and I see the earnings line. I see the trend. Gee, it's kind of like, I don't know. Does this mean earnings could fall more than usual in this recession or not? Like, t- talk to me about, you know, you say wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. I mean, in other words, what's the likelihood that earnings wind up being not so bad or even worse than possible? Possibly. Uh, you know, I, what would you I say? think we would still, still argue that the probability is that it, they, they will turn out worse rather than better. You know, I think there is a very high level of comfort, you know, in markets and complacency. Uh, One might even go as far as to say that about earnings expectations because of the nominal growth that we have seen. You know, we still believe that, you know, you are going to see, you know, you never see a problem with earnings, you know, as inflation goes up. You know, you can always price goods higher and your earnings hold up well it's when you actually see economic growth slow and inflation slow that sales come down and margins just get absolutely crashed operational gearing you know so the relationship between sales and and profits you know has has become twice as volatile over the last 15 years than it was in the 15 years before that so operational leverage has increased across the economy, uh, the U.S. economy. Um, and you talked about detrending those. You know, we're starting about 25 to 30 percent, depending on whether you're looking at the U.S. or global equities, above trend. Every recession, every bear market sees earnings finish below trend, George. That's the reason why I still feel that we've got, unless policymakers have a change of heart and they decide to extend this cycle and we, you know, we just push this cycle out for another two years, three years, etc. And, you know, we kick the can down the line. You know, if there is going to be a day of reckoning, then that reckoning comes in profits. And if, you know, ironically, 
you know, for, for all the discussion about leveling up in the UK or about, you know, getting greater equality in the US uh, that, that President Biden was talking about. The way to do that is have a recession. Recessions hurt corporates more than they hurt households. Um, and, you know, that's uh, so, you know, profits. You, and if you want to use um, some of the macro variables that we look at for this earnings story, first of all, let's look at the corporates themselves. The CEO confidence survey is at close to record lows. They are telling you things are bad. Secondly, trade, global trade and global earnings have been positively related, very closely related, going back to the 1970s. And, you know, the latest trade data that we, you know, one of the short term indicators that we look at is Frankfurt Air Freight. You know, that's down more than 20 percent year on year, George. And finally, you know, the other great indicator, U.S. manufacturing new orders. And, you know, last week, those were absolutely horrendous. So, um, yeah, I know the, the services numbers picked up all right on, on the Tuesday, uh, on, on, on Friday. But, you know, the bottom line is that it's actually been the manufacturing numbers that have always driven earnings because economic activity is actually driven in its, in its volatility much more by the manufacturing side than the services side even though the services side is larger. So, yeah, I'm still very comfortable with that, um, with that uh, analysis. Right. Um, another question related to that. So um, things don't turn on a dime or sixpence, whatever you guys call it. <laughs> um, you know, there are leads and legs. And so um, we saw last year, um, you know, interest rates go up and probably most rapid increase in interest rates in history or something like approaching that. Um, you know, bond yields have come off a bit, but short rates haven't. They've come for a tiny bit. Um, but so rate, rates are still very much higher than they were um, 12, 18 months ago. Uh, the oil price shot up from depressed levels. It's come off a bit. Um, and the dollar went up significantly and it's come off a bit. So maybe for starting rates, um, when you Think about, and, and I hope Michael Howell will, will weigh on this one when, when we get into the Q and A. Um, how do you think about the leads and legs of these things? That you know, for instance, housing uh, is in a bad way right now because you know, yeah, the mortgages have come off. Um, and there's there's a lag in, in terms of how quickly the the increase in rates impacts the economy. So how do you think about the leads and legs and all these variables, be it housing, be it the dollar, be, be, being at the oil price? So I think the people, you know, I think the markets, you know, two things. First of all, the markets, you know, have in many ways become more um, immediate, you know, with the rise in passive investing. You know, they you know, we've seen from things like some of the FedEx results we've had over the, the last year or so. You know, if you can see the disaster coming, you know, the active managers, you know, know it's coming and but we still get the stock down 20, 30 percent on the day when you get the, you know, the rubbish earnings numbers. You know, so a more passive markets provides more opportunity for macro investing. Um, and we've got a chart on that. But, you know, what what's the leads and the lags? The, you know, economists always say monetary policy acts with long and variable lags. And that is definitely true. Um, and, you know, I think that one should recognize that in the last couple of years, you know, we've been able to absorb some of the shocks of higher interest rates 
particularly in the last year, by running down those um, those savings. Savings reached a record low in terms of rates uh, of, of the flow, savings rate. Um, there's still probably a, a stock of savings that is still available. But the only way that you can sustain the type of retail sales growth at the time when real incomes have been squeezed back to 2019 levels is um, you know, by either running down your savings or by borrowing more. And I think consumers have assumed that they can trade through this because interest rates will come down and the Fed will bail them out. I, and that's a dangerous assumption. And I think we're going to see delinquency rates, well, we're already starting to see those start to rise. They're very low levels. We're already starting to see insolvency start to rise from very low levels in the UK. Actually, that you know, we've now seen insolvencies rise over fifty percent in the last twelve months. Um, you know, I think we're still in the early phases of those um, those interest rate effects feeding through. As for oil prices, George, you know, the work that we've done in the past suggests that oil prices have to go up for a good six months. Um, you know, on a continuous basis and stay up rising. Um, and it's not until you get almost three years down the line. So, you know, so it's actually almost an 18 month change and 18 months later, do you get the maximum impact in terms of the negative? So the improvement that we're seeing in things like the European gas prices, you know, the oil prices, you know, those are going to feed into 2024, 2025 recovery as opposed to 2023 recovery, in my view. Got it. So, Ian, one of the charts you mentioned, uh, it's about, oh God, it's four or five in. Uh, you and I spoke about it before yeah. the call. It's from it's from Jan 26. You just sort of touched on it. Yeah. You were talking before about uh, the macro and the trade-off between macro beta and stock alpha. Yeah. Um, could you speak a little bit um, to this chart? I find this is this is fascinating. It means, if I read it correctly, it means there's there's less to be done in terms of stock picking, more about yeah. just getting the macro. I, I right. the, so yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah go I ahead, go ahead. That's the um, the, the so that chart you you've kindly put up for us again, George, from the twenty sixth, the first. Yeah. So what we do is is to see where the high level of correlation is um, within the markets. Uh, uh, and so this is looking at equity prices, how they link together. Um, and we uh, do something called a principal component analysis. And we take the first three common factors and basically say, well, those are going to be there. Everything's moving together. So that's going to be a, a macro factor. And what is left is the is, you know, therefore idiosyncratic risk and what people might call alpha in terms of stock picking. And it's, you know, it's one of, of multiple ways of trying to calculate this kind of measure. But, you know, I think, you know, if you obviously are a, 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 an outstanding single stock investor that's had decades of experience of doing this, and I think you would probably agree, you know, it's got harder rather than easier um, as you know, regulatory changes have come through, the growth of passive investing, you know, there's a whole range of uh, factors, um, you know, the rise of mutual funds you know, that have meant that alpha in markets looks as though it's been squeezed out. So, you know, our conclusion is that, that the, um, 
you know, markets have become much more driven by these common factors, by the macro factors. Uh, the surprise is that, you know, people say, oh, well, it's beta, therefore I can't beat the market. But actually, you can trade that beta. And, you know, what we surprised at is that still a lot of institutional investors spend 90% of their research budget on trying to capture that declining alpha and only 10% of their research budgets trying to capture, you know, the, uh, the 70% that is coming from, the, uh, from the, uh, the, 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 the macro beta side. Terrific. Um, one more question, Ian, and then I, I see Michael Howell is joining us. It's terrific. Um, in, 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 you know, actually, I'll ask uh, Michael Howell the same question as yourself. The question is, Ian, from where you sit, you look geographically um, at the States, Europe, um, China, uh, Japan, etc. Uh, do you notice any um, disparate uh, trends or is it um, anything noteworthy on a geographical basis? I think, you know, clearly, you know, we're looking at the, the scope for the China recovery to come through. Um, you know, I think uh, uh, something that feeds into one of Michael's points would be that, uh, you know, we've seen some liquidity expansion. I think one reason why I'm I'm nervous about that liquidity expansion is that I think it comes largely from Japan and uh, to a lesser degree from China. And, you know, our analysis is that the Chinese authorities don't want to see that liquidity expansion continue. And there's a limit as to how far the Chinese, you know, recovery is going to go, therefore, um, and how long it can be sustained. You know, it, it relies very much on domestic savings coming down. Um, and, you know, what we've seen around the world is, you know, when you do the reopening, it is basically a domestic consumer phenomenon. It's not going to be a driver of global growth in the way that I think some of the markets are currently pricing it. So um, I, I think China may have got a bit ahead of itself. I think Europe's a long way ahead of itself because Europe is cyclical. If you don't get a global cyclical recovery, Europe's now massively overpriced. Um, and I actually think that the US is the place that is um, has now, got, you know, it, it's still expensive but you know it, it, in the world of the ugly it may uh, it may outperform on a relative basis that's terrific ian okay so let's um our, our good mutual friend mr howell is here no stranger to these rooms good to see you michael how are you hi george i'm um, pretty well thanks excellent how are you doing excellent so um maybe you you've been banging the drum about um the uh, change in liquidity conditions globally and I think in particular citing what's been coming out of the Far East. So uh, I was just asking Ian about geographical differences. So maybe that's a, maybe since you look at the world slightly differently from Ian, you're looking at through the prism of liquidity. Um, and I remember, Michael, when I first met you many years ago, I get pissed off. You didn't care about valuations or anything. It's always how much money is there in the world and where is it going to go? So um, maybe, Michael, start off with where start off with your sort of China angle and um, uh, and how you see disparate trends in liquidity in economies. And so take it away, Michael. Good to see you. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let me start off. I mean, I was only intending to be a listener here, so uh, I'm going to try and extemporize. So I'm, um, I, it may sound rather jumbled, but let, let me, um, let me sort of continue. I mean, basically we, we were on the dark side and we've moved very, very much into uh if you like, a positive view of markets. And that was triggered um, basically by two things. One of those was what happened in the UK in September in the guilt debacle. 
many of you may remember the the horror show in the British sovereign debt market. Uh, and that triggered a change among central banks globally. Uh, the one thing that central banks want to defend is not necessarily inflation or uh, unemployment. It's the integrity of their sovereign debt markets. And just think, had what happened uh, in the British gilt market happened to the US Treasury market, uh, we'd all be toast by now. So this was a big, big wake-up call. What you've seen um, in the US since then is the Federal Reserve is deliberately targeting US bank reserves. Uh, make no mistake about that. Uh, you look at how much bank reserves have flatlined pretty much since that time. Uh, the Federal Reserve is uh, eager that those bank reserves do not fall much below three, $3 trillion. And uh, I got in for a lot of uh, uh, stick on Twitter and uh, on other podcasts. I mean, um, the uh, I don't know what the, those guys, the Italian guy was pretty rude about what I was saying. Uh, the Italian guy, one of the is it block, block works, was very rude about what uh, we were doing. But actually, time has borne that out. And what I've been saying is that uh, there's a big change in terms of central bank sentiment. Doesn't mean to say that QE, QT uh, is not going to headline QT is not going to happen because basically they're going to allow uh, US Treasuries to roll off the balance sheet. But just consider in detail what um, Governor Waller said about two, two weeks ago. And what they're trying to do is to fudge the numbers. They're trying to have their cake and eat it. And what you're going to see in the US is the reverse repo runoff quite fast. Uh, that will allow them to shrink the balance sheet cosmetically but bank reserves will stay up. In other words, what that means in, uh, uh, in dollars and cents is that basically Fed liquidity conditions basically uh, have stopped going down now. QT is effectively dead uh, and liquidity in the US is going to start to pick up, I would suspect, over the course of the next few weeks. The second thing to say in terms of that, of that comment is to ask every, everyone's got to ask a question. Uh, and that of themselves. And that is, does the Federal Reserve and the US Treasury want to create a recession this year when you've got a significant step up, likely step up in the war in Europe going on? And that's, I think, a big question. I don't think they do. So what's the point in creating recession now? So that's, uh, you know, a point to ponder when you're thinking about policy. The second thing is what's happening in China? Uh, Japan, we know, is is goosing the markets with liquidity. They're going to continue. The next BOJ head is likely to be a fairly benign, soft choice, uh, and they'll continue this policy. But China is the big change. And a lot of commentators who, in our view, look at the wrong things, but you know, in a way, thankfully, they do, um, have been saying that China is not easing. There's no evidence. <laughs> Just quite the contrary. China has basically put... 3 trillion yuan RMB into their financial markets in the last two months. That's about $450 billion. Uh, that compares, or that is at a rate which is three to three and a half times the total amount they put into their markets in the previous two years. So that's what the change is. China is going for it. They've got to get their economy moving. And pretty much ever since they've done that, look at what commodity prices have done. Look at what cyclical stocks have done. Our measures, we do a lot of nowcasting work on economies, and our nowcasting of the world economy has almost gone vertical uh, since the beginning of November, since they started this policy. So what you're seeing is um, 
uh, you know, a significant change. And, you know, we've entitled our, you know, recent research, when the facts change, we change our mind. Uh, and that's what's going on. So basically, you know, what I would say is, uh, in, in essence, we don't look at PE multiples. I've never found them particularly useful in terms of, of a macro view. Uh, we tend to look at the markets. The markets are telling us things have changed. I'd single out two indicators to people to consider. One is crypto. Crypto has got nothing behind it. It's a pure liquidity phenomenon. But liquidity is up and crypto is up big time. And if liquidity continues to go up, so will crypto. The second thing is, is an indicator that I always call the, the, the Stan Druckermiller uh, index. Druckermiller always used to say that the best economist is the internals of the stock market. And he used to have a chart which looked at cyclicals versus defensives. And if you look at cyclicals versus defensives and overlay that on the economy, it's almost one for one. And what you've seen is a big breakout um, in terms of that cyclicals defensive. And it's tracking exactly our indicators of where the world economy is going. So it looks as if things have changed quite, uh, quite noticeably. And in terms of where we're positioned, I'm, we're, we're negative on bonds. Uh, we're upbeat on uh, equities. Uh, we like gold. We like crypto. We like corporate debt. Uh, we like uh, technology, emerging markets, underweight defensive and underweight U.S. So let's stay with that. Um, so we've got sort of, if I may, liquidity view from uh, Michael and Ian, more sort of the, the fundamental profits and earnings view. And, and, and I guess you know, they're somewhat related. But so I'll go to I'll go to uh, stay with you, Michael, and then, then, then back to Ian. So let's say they're going for for all the reasons you uh, outlined. By the way, just sidebar: um, you mentioned you're expecting an escalation in the war. Is that is that uh, is, is that correct? Yeah. Well, if you start exporting tanks from every part of the world <laughs> into uh, Ukraine, I, I always thought a tank was an offensive weapon, not a defensive. Yeah, there you go. Maybe there I'm wrong. Go. Okay, sorry, sorry. I need some more caffeine. Fine. So, um, so, so, so um, let's say, say, let's say it's all right. And then I, I suppose it, it speaks to um, the, uh, what happens to uh, inflation, interest rates and so on and so forth, because one of the longstanding fears has been that, you know, if they ease too quickly, the inflation thing picks up again, blah, 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 blah. So, 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 so what are your thoughts about the inflation picture, Michael? Well, I think in the, in the short term, I think inflation is coming down quite, quite fast. Um, I think that's right. I think it's it's not gonna it's gonna be volatile. It's not gonna be dead overnight. Uh, so I think we're looking at a. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see a slightly higher level of trend inflation over the long term, but it to be a lot more volatile. I think that that's that's would be my view. I think this year it's coming down quite significantly, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that would be fair. I think the you know the point which is you know I suppose uppermost in my mind is you know. Is um, is Jay Powell a Volcker? Uh, is he trying to do a Volcker? Uh, I don't think this year. I think that you know, if you're going to do a Volcker, probably the best time is two or three years' time, not not now. It's better to get a little bit of inflation into the system, try and devalue some of this debt. Uh, and if you're going to, you know, if you are going to try and get rid of the debt problem, why do it this year? Do it, you know, three, four, five years down the road, down the road, pretty much as the U.S. did in the in the 70s. You don't want to do it. You don't do it in 74, 75. You do it in uh, 80, 81. That sort of that sort of time frame. You get a little bit of inflation, un, you know, under the you get a headwind with so sorry a, a, a backwind with some inflation, 
devalue the debt and then start to hike rates and squeeze people. But I don't think there's any merit doing it now. And I would say that, you know, if you look at it politically in the US, you know, third year of a presidential term, pretty good time normally for the markets, uh, war in Europe, um, you know, why create a recession? Um, you know, all the data that we've seen in the earnings season, as far as I can tell, I don't look at this stuff very closely, looks as if you're looking at some sort of bottoming out going on. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I've, uh, as you can tell, I'm a lot more upbeat. Doesn't mean to say I think equities are going to have a stunning year. I, that's not my view. I mean, we think that the big markets, equities and bonds, pretty much range bound through the year. But unlike um, 2022, you're going to see some really strong performances from certain sectors. And we're upbeat on cyclicals and have been. Uh, we think tech is probably going to do OK. It's really a liquidity phenomenon. And defensives, you know, that's what a lot of people have got. Um, they'd like it under. So, George, can I come back in on that one? Because yeah. you know, well, well, <laughs> of course, Ian, Ian go for it. Go for you it. Know, so, Michael, one of the other charts that you know you talk about the the Stan uh, Miller chart about cyclicals versus defensives, and linking to economic activity. But one of the charts we use with our clients is a long run chart of inflation. Um, and if you look at inflation and look at cyclicals versus defensives, you find a, a phrase that we've described as. Uh, always and everywhere, inflation is a cyclical phenomenon. So if you think that, that inflation is coming down this year on a cyclical basis, then the likelihood is that cyclicals underperform um, because you need that pricing power. So, you know, it's generally really just a cross-check. And I suppose the other question that I have, which I, I you know, tried to hint at, um, is... Absolutely agree with you. What we're seeing at the moment is that there has been this liquidity expansion. You know, we, we always talk about the dollar as being the, the best real time liquidity indicator. Um, obviously, yours is going to be better. But, you know, but, uh, um, you know, but if you're looking at the market and again, as you say, the internals of the market work well, um, then, you know, how long can that liquidity expansion last? And I think that's the thing that I worry about, which is how long can the, the BOJ pump in three quarters of a trillion dollars uh, of liquidity? And how long is the PBOC willing to do so? And, you know, I think in relation to that, you know, what we've seen in the Fed is really quite modest indeed, and the TGA. Well, I think, I mean, to, to answer that question, I mean, I, it, it's something that we, I mean, we're not forecasting whether liquidity is going to go up in six months' time or 12 months' time. Our point is that what, what we're doing is we're monitoring liquidity. Liquidity is a leading indicator. Um, and that's almost all you need to know. Uh, if they've got the taps on, markets will go up. If the taps t turn off, markets will come down. Uh, I mean, we, we tend to use liquidity to understand the markets and the markets to understand the economy. So it, it's a sort of different uh, different sequencing, I, I guess. Yeah, so I suppose um, we'd, really, but, we'd really just say that's more the dynamic asset allocation side where liquidity sentiment drive um, things. And I suppose where we're trying to do is trying to, trying to guess where that extra, the next six months after that might be going from a range of indicators, which would you know, obviously also include the liquidity side. Um, you know, and so looking for the strategic asset allocation 12 to 18 months and then the, the, the you know, the longer term asset allocation as well. Right. So um, 
So we're in this. So so let's go back to the Fed this past week. I'm not really a very good Fed watcher, but uh, Michael, since you very carefully watch all the monetary stuff, and you said you know not a time necessarily for for Pal to do a Volcker. Um, what did you? I think many observers were very surprised. I was certainly um, when he got up uh, and, and didn't you didn't push back against this extraordinary easing in uh, financial conditions uh, that we that we've seen in recent months. In fact, you, you'd have the numbers better than I, but I think they're already back to where they were a year ago or something like that. I mean, this is hardly suggestive. Someone wants to do a Paul be Paul Volcker two point to your point, but. What did you? What was your takeaway from from what from what he from what he said? What he said last week? Well, I I think I think it's difficult to to um, to say much after listening to you know any of these governors. And you know, I I've always learned best thing to do is look at what they're doing rather than what they're saying. But the actions of the Federal Reserve, in terms of what they're doing in the markets, their own interventions, would suggest that. They're, they're on a very different agenda to the headline QT agenda. Uh, and you can see that, you know, if you just look at uh, look at the amount of, uh, of debt that's rolling off the balance sheet, um, it's nothing like the, the trend they once suggested. Um, and if you look more closely, not so much at the headline QT, but if you look at the effective QT, it's effectively gone sideways to slightly higher. And I, then these numbers are going to be slightly out of date. Uh, because they're they're weekly numbers, but I think in the last three months the Federal Reserve balance sheet shrank by maybe two hundred and eighty three hundred um, billion dollars. Uh, but the Federal Reserve managed to inject about sixty billion dollars net into the system. I mean, these are you know these are you know decent amounts of money. I mean, they're not huge, as Ian points out, but they're they're significant. And the fact is that we've got a Federal Reserve and we've got many central banks globally that are now turning towards easing or inflecting upwards, let's say, beginnings right. of easing rather than tightening. And it's inflections that markets, as we know, inflections are the key point. And, we, you know, that's, what we, that, that's where we are. Um, um, yeah, you mentioned, uh, Michael, earlier the uh, reserve repo. Uh, and maybe just touch on briefly the TGA account, because I know that's a big... Uh, a big swing variable as well. You just speak to the TGA account for a second, Michael, and, and what that's meant. Okay. The um, right. What what you've got in terms of the uh, of the Federal Reserve balance sheet is you've got uh, one element that everyone tends to focus on, which is the asset side of the balance sheet, which is effectively dominated by the roll off currently the roll off of treasuries. Okay, uh, and that's what is the headline QT that people figure on. But that's not, that does not measure the liquidity that's going into the system, okay, because there are offsets or other factors that come into it, which you've got to look at the liability side of the balance sheet to understand. One of those is the reverse repo account, which is basically um, uh, a tool that the Federal Reserve invented uh, to absorb some of the huge cash deposits uh, that people found themselves with after the COVID giveaways. Uh, and that sucked up liquidity at the front end of the market to try and preserve the integrity of, uh, of short-term rates uh, in a rate-hiking environment. The second is the TGA, which I'll come on to. And the third is the losses that the Federal Reserve is making at the operating level uh, because it's paying out more interest uh, than it's now receiving coupon 
on the treasury holdings uh those uh those factors can either with either subtract or add to liquidity the losses add to liquidity the tga and the reverse repo tend to vary but a bigger reverse repo is a detraction and a bigger treasury general account which is the treasury's account at the federal reserve is also a de- uh, um, a detraction now what's upcoming uh is the debt ceiling and the debt ceiling will mean that there can be no more debt issuance i mean as it goes stands for reason but it means that they they can't issue uh debt so what will happen is there'll be various manipulations the fortunate part for the biden administration is that this is the heavy tax paying season so the tga normally goes up in this this time of this time of the year so what will happen is that the tga will go up uh it will detract from liquidity in the short term so february may be a bad month but then they'll run down the tga to levels i mean it's currently 500 billion it'll probably be run down i suspect to levels of about 100 billion or there or thereabouts but they'll try other means of actually raising raising money but that is directly a 400 billion injection into the system um, without any question. Does that, I don't know if that answers your question. No, it, cer- it certainly does. It certainly does. Um, so, so before we go to Emma, I will be next and then Nostra. Uh, Ian, let me ask you a question. So let's say we get this, you know, this Michael's, uh, this Philip and liquidity we're getting here, which is boosting markets. Let's say this continues on and looking at valuations, how do you bridge let's say michael's right and michael and, and, and markets are you know not wildly higher but but you know up they certainly don't go down from here ian looking at where valuations are um in the market if this if this in fact was a bottom you know, a bottom I don't know, bottom a bottom what and you're looking at s&p earnings i don't know 200 bucks this year roundabout whatever um wouldn't this make this one of the most uh, expensive, uh, highly valued bottoms in the history of markets. Oh, yeah, would George? Um, you know, and I think that's the, uh, the you know the, the the point here, which is that, uh, and I think that's the other, the, you know, pushback, you know, to, to to Michael, you know, that I would just you know perhaps take issue with about the inflection points, because historically the inflection points when the Fed has has um, you know pivoted downwards have tended apart from 1995, to be you know, bad news. You know, the median decline when the Fed has cut rates, uh, you know, has, has or, you know, has, we, after we've seen the peak in the effective federal funds rate, has been something like 28% down relative to bonds. Sometimes it's taken three years to get to the bottom. Sometimes it's taken three weeks, as it did in 1987. It's, uh, uh, you know, but, but, you know, the... Uh, Unless, as I say, we're seeing central banks that just want to extend this cycle, but you know, how does that fit with the narrative that they want to get inflation down? Um, you know, the the probability is that something you know is already broken or is breaking. You know, we're seeing the problems in the housing market. We're seeing the problems in some of these other markets. You know, I just you know I find it very difficult to see George how we could sustain. These kind of valuations, without having a massive expansion of liquidity, you know, another QE level of you know 
of, and I'm not sure, um, Michael, that you're you're really expecting that kind of expansion of liquidity. Um, so you'd either need to see, you know, big liquidity expansion, in my view, or you'd need to see a big fiscal expansion um, being met by by um, accommodating yeah. monetary policy to sustain. Yeah, my, yeah, but, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll go to Emma one second. But Michael Howell, one question for you. What do uh, what do uh, interest rates and bond yields do in, in the world you're, you're thinking about, Michael? Um, I think the corporate debt market looks attractive, um, particularly, you know, some of the um, yeah, around the investment grade area. I think there's some some attractions uh, for sure. Um, I think that in terms of the of the government market, the U.S. Treasury market, uh, take the 10 year yield. I wouldn't expect it to be much different, you know, 12 months from now than, than where we are. Uh, so I, don't, I think it, it ranges sideways. I mean, you know, in many ways, I think the market environment looks like, to me, 2001, 2002, uh, parche the fact that, you know, clearly in the middle of that, we got the, you know, catastrophic 9-11 events. But, you know, looking through that, uh, I think that if you look at the behavior of the markets, um, it, I, I think it's going to be, you know, it's going to unfold in that way, where you actually saw the treasury market kind of flatlining through that period it gave you decent returns but nothing overwhelming but you've got some really big performances coming out of corporate uh out of corporate debt uh, and then you started to see equities pick up admittedly with something of a of a lag but uh you know that's that's the template that i that i would tend but, to think we're following but michael doesn't, um, doesn't don't, the, don't don't those bank lending surveys that we saw out the ecb last week and the senior loan officer surveys out of the Federal Reserve, they just scare me witless because historically they've been really good indicators of, of credit spreads and credit defaults. And they're, they're saying that, you know, that this is just going to be a train wreck over the next 12 months. I, I've, I must say, I've, I've, I look closely at those. I've never found them particularly uh, prescient. Uh, but, and I, you know, I mean, I'm not, uh, you, know, you, you may well have done, I, I don't know, but I've never found any, anything in them. Uh, I think I'll, I'll put know, a chart up on, a lot. I'll put a chart up and, uh, in a moment, Art, and you can have a look. Sure. Uh, yeah, that, I, yeah. look at the, I look at the internals of the fixed income markets a lot. I mean, that's, you know, putting my Salomon Brothers hat on. I mean, that, that's what I was always taught. And if you look at the internals of the, uh, of the treasury market, it's telling you that the economy is due to bottom in America. Uh, around May of this year. Um, and, you know, that would make sense if you take, you know, there was a, a thing on Twitter I put up the other day, which I got from Capital Group, uh, which showed on average the stock market uh, picks up six months before a bottom in the, um, uh, in the economy. Um, and if, that, if that's the case, then those things are kind of lining up quite well. So let's let, 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 let's let's turn uh, to some uh, question other questions from the audience. Uh, I'd like to do Emma first, then Nostra, and then Ill and I. Emma, good to see you. What's on your mind? Hi, George. Thanks for bringing me up. Um, so I just had a question for Michael. Uh, you mentioned you would expect the U.S. ten-year Treasury to be roughly flat at the end of the year. How do you how does the BOJ factor into your assessment there? Well, <laughs> thanks, Emma. Uh, I mean, I, I wasn't really factoring the BOJ into that. I think that, you know, if you take the what's happening in Japan, I mean, my, my, I mean, who, Christ, who knows what's happening in Japan? Uh, even though they aren't too sure, I think. The, um, I think my reading of it is that, you know, what you've got is, um, is 
an attempt to run a persistently loose policy while, um, I mean, yes, persistently loose policy with the caveat that what's really driving uh, this in many ways is maybe what is latently driving the U.S. policy, which is to preserve the integrity of the Treasury markets. And I think that the, you know, the move that the BOJ made back in, uh, when was it, December, was not a monetary policy easing so much as actually a way of a way of uh, trying to make the markets, the Treasury market, the JGB market, uh, more liquid. Because, I mean, liquidity had just dried up in that market. I suspect that you will see yields going up a bit in Japan, but I don't think necessarily hugely. I think they're going to use... They're, they're just going to use QE uh, as they did before. But the thing with the Japanese, as we know, is that there's a lot of moral suasion going on with the institutions. And it's quite possible they will force institutions to go back uh, into the JGB. Actually, technically, it's or, or arithmetically, it's actually probably to their advantage now anyway. Uh, but that will take money out of treasuries. So I think that there's upside risks on treasuries. I think the rate expectations will come down but, you know, the point that we keep making repeatedly <laughs> ad nauseum is that the, the huge uh, problem in the treasury markets is the term premium. I mean, it's just massively negative. And that can almost only go up from here, which means you've kind of got a two way or three way pull on the bond market, which is why I'm not particularly upbeat on treasuries uh, generally. Got it. It's a good question, Aaron. Thanks for that. Let's move on to uh, Nostra and then Illini and then Gnostic. Nostra, good to see you. Hey, George. Thanks for having me up. Um, <clears throat> Michael, I had a question uh, also about the uh, about U.S. Treasuries. Um, you did say you were bearish bonds, but at the uh, same time you said you expect it to be flat. So my question is, I mean, we all know this debt ceiling is just political theater. But um, with the uh, Fed running a net operating loss and going from remitting profits to the treasury to now running massive uh, losses that eventually have to be paid by the treasury. So my overall question is, when do you think the U.S. sovereign debt um, comes into um, question? <laughs> it's a very good question. I wish I had, I wish I had an answer to that. I think, look, at the end of, at the, end of the day, uh, you know, the, um, the U.S. The US is, the, is the cleanest shirt in the laundry. Uh, and that's I think the way we've got to think about it. I mean, things are things aren't good with the fiscal, uh, you know, balances in the U.S. But I tell you, there are damn sight worse everywhere else. So I think from that perspective, uh, you know, the, the treasury market may, uh, you know, may may continue to uh, or may maintain its integrity for longer than we think. Uh, but you know, it, the the whole issue that you know central banks or treasurers have got to face in the next uh, the next five to ten years, which I'm sure Ian would endorse is that, you know, the fiscal arithmetic just doesn't work. And at the end of the day, you know, Japan is the canary in the coal mine here. What we've seen in Japan is going to transmit to every Western economy. And that means, uh, you know, not just QE, uh, disinflation and whatever else. It also means yield curve control. And actually, after all, maybe what these central banks are doing now in different guises is different forms of yield curve control. Great. Thanks for that. Great question. Okay, let's now go to uh, Illini and then um, uh, Gnostic and then KFEB. Illini? Hey, George. Thanks for having me up. Uh, Ian, Michael, great space. Um, yeah, Michael, I think you raise a really good point here. I, th I think if everybody was taking a look at where we were this time last year and people had told us 
rates would be four and a half percent and and you know unemployment would be three point four percent and you know monetary conditions uh, uh, you know financial conditions would be easing. I think a lot of us would have been pretty surprised. I certainly would have been. Um, my question is, you know, getting back to this the, this whole debt situation, debt to GDP is is roughly over one hundred percent, even on that basis. If if the monetary effects uh, on financial conditions of one hundred basis point rate hike is X, you know, what is the offsetting you know fiscal effect from you know increasing fiscal stimulus by you know one percentage point of, of GDP? Is it 0.1x is it 0.5x or or is it you know approaching you know the same effect of of the monetary impact uh well i i, I mean i'm i'm not the best maybe the best person to ask i mean i, I i've uh, uh i must say although i've although i've got a phd in economics i've, I've long lost faith in economics as a, as a prediction i i don't do any sort of fiscal arithmetic i i tend to focus entirely on sort of fun foes and liquidity so Maybe it's a, it's a Ian. Maybe it can answer the question. Oh, I, I'm not sure about that either. Uh, and, uh, and again, right. but but I think the one thing I would say is that you know, bear in mind that the fiscal um, tends to be more immediate than the than the monetary, uh, and I think that that's one thing to bear in mind. And uh, you know, if anything, you know, what we're seeing is we're seeing a rundown of those fiscal stimulus uh, measures uh, in a number of countries around the world. Uh, as far as I understand it, um, and the lagged effects of the monetary side are still to come through. And I think I, I would just, you know, the thing that I would just remind a few people uh, is, you know, when in the the Illinois in the in the way that you presented that argument, it sounds great, but it sounded as though you were you were talking about a world where you know we were back to normal. You know, the S and P is still down fourteen percent from its highs. You know, we are still talking about a bond market that had losses the like of which you haven't seen in a century. You know, this has been a violent, violent, you know, you know, screw uh, where central banks have completely torn up the idea that they were providing any kind of support for, for bondholders. Um, and, you know, at some point they will end up having to pay for that. You know that the, the the bond risk premium has risen, um, and you know I, I do think that you know the the you know the, this balance between monetary and fiscal policy, I I, I I do think is a bit overplayed here. But what we do know is that that monetary policy tightening has been extreme, and the fiscal easing is beginning to moderate. But uh, you know, as Michael said, there's some you know there's some military spending, but that just means I want to buy defense companies you know it, it doesn't uh, i'm not sure that it, it really does anything about you know overall global growth or anything like that so i'm not sure that was really answers your question though in a way you ask a uh, excellent question deceptively complicated so thanks for the question um george just, just yeah. if i can i mean i don't want to hog this because it's not not my no. show but but what just ask a question what what are, what are the technicians saying? Well, what about your mate, uh, Dennis Gartman? What, what's his view at the moment? The, the, the chartists are all, uh, they're all bowled up now because they're all, you know, momentum animals. And, um, okay. and okay. you know, they're... they're he's not really, is he? No, he's not. But, I mean, I wouldn't cite him so much. But those who are maybe even 
more closely following these things and I've been watching. They're all, as the markets have gone up, they've all become increasingly positive. So, um, but you know, it tends, tends to go with a lag, but no, I mean, things like market breath and as uh, you rightly pointed out, the internals of the market, the uh, cyclicals against the defensives and others, um, it's generally, generally been very positive. Um, and so, you know, Belkin. I've been, I, 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 I've been caught out by this rally for sure. Um, Belkin, what's he saying? Belkin is very, I'll send you something later. He's, he, he, he's, he's become positive as well. I'll, I'll give Michael credit. He turned positive a couple of months ago. So he's been sort of one step ahead of the rest. So I might have to talk to him. But isn't this the point, George, um, which is that, you know, bear market rallies are always technical rallies and liquidity driven rallies. Fundamental rallies get, get driven by earnings and multiples and they're sustained by underlying economics. You know, and I think this is the, you know, this is the reason why, Michael, I'm, you know, I'm so, you know, I, I, I have a lot of sympathy with your view that this is a liquidity trip because everything has gone up. Bonds have gone up and equities have gone up. That tells you this is about liquidity. But once that liquidity stops, then this stuff comes back down. And that's that's the reason why I'm still cautious. And the $64,000 question is, you know, whether that whether that's next week or six months from now, I mean, you know, a, a lot can happen. Um, um, and, you know, bear market rallies, we've talked about this a lot over the year, bear market rallies are, are, a, uh, are, are a feature, not a bug. Uh, I was reading. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, we'll see. I mean, it's it's uh, very, very compelling um, uh, arguments on, uh, on all sides here. Uh, let's move along. I'd like to go to uh, Gnostic and then uh, KFED. Gnostic, good to see you. What's on your mind? Oh, massive confusion, um, which is being presented here. Uh, Michael, Ian, um, wow, what a great presentation for both sides of the market. Um, and you basically present me with a confused mind, which I've been confused about for some time now, uh, and great explanations for both sides of it, <clears throat> which subsequently only increases my confusion, um, which usually means there's something going on that is outside of the realm of either of the fundamental areas that both Michael and Ian are talking about. And there's, so there's something else going on that, that we just don't have a good handle for it. And I certainly don't myself. Um, just as a little side note, anecdotal note here, uh, before I get into the question that I had, I was talking to a uh, senior bank person in a bank in Canada uh, just this week, who was saying to me that one of the things that they're seeing is they're seeing uh, a whole bunch of people, particularly older people, switching to GICs out of uh, the standard investments that they've been doing. And this is one of the issues I'm trying to wrap my head around about the possible lack of liquidity in the marketplace. And Michael, or Ian, sorry, Ian, the, the question that sort of surrounded me with what you were saying, Michael, your, your microphone's open at the moment. Uh, one of the things that's that raised while you were doing things is, it sounds like what you're saying is there's a leak in the liquidity somewhere, which nobody's putting their finger on. Um, and that's being replaced at the moment. When it withdraws, that leak in liquidity is going to increase. And I wonder if that, that leak isn't people going to US currency uh, as a method of protection at the moment, and how you would answer that one as to a, a seek for safety rather than investment return, which is distorting things in the marketplace. 
Uh, again, Michael may be a better person to answer because, you know, you, you look at the flows more closely than I do, uh, Michael. You know, are you, are you seeing that in terms of the of the dollar? Um, and then I'll come back and answer, you know, my, my side. I mean, the, the first thing is that the flows of money are moving out of the dollar. Um, I don't think that's going to be, I mean, I, I think one's got to, one's got to temper that to say that I still, I still believe that the dollar is in a longer term uptrend, but I think that what we're seeing is a correction in the dollar. And if you look at capital flows, they've been moving out of the dollar in the last uh, few months, last two or three months uh, on our numbers. Uh, a lot of money is moving into emerging markets. That's, that's for sure. Uh, and as we know, cyclicals. So I think all those, all those boxes are ticked. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the, I mean, the other thing on the liquidity front which is something that reinforced, uh, you know, our, our views and um, um, is looking at market liquidity in the treasury market. We do uh, our own daily calculations of, uh, of the depth of the U.S. treasury market. And that index bottomed. I mean, if, you, if it runs between, let me give you a scale, zero to 100, that index dropped uh, kind of like a stone, really, to a low point in September of about 10 on the index at the height of the British guilt crisis. It's currently, it's rebounded strongly. It's currently just over 50. So that gives you some idea about how depth has increased in the treasury market over that period. And that's only because funds have flowed in uh, to the market, courtesy partly of the Fed. And if you look at Bloomberg, do a similar index. Uh, I'm not sure what's in theirs, but they do a similar thing. And it shows almost exactly the same feature. So I think that, that that's true. I think the you know the other thing I'd say is that you know we've been upbeat, but this has not been an easy market to make money out of. I mean, our funds, although they made money in November, December, lost money in January, and that was because January was a really tricky month to trade. Uh, you know, we were negative on Europe going into the month. We had a lot of money in Asia, um, and you know, Asia did okay, but it didn't do as well as Europe. And then by the end of the month, um, you know, China sold off. So we ended up losing money, bizarrely, although we got an upbeat view. So it's, it's a, these are tricky markets to trade. Yeah, I, I think that's very true. And I think that, you know, the other thing is that, you know, what you said, Michael, about, you know, I think you, the point that um, Yellen stepped in actively to increase liquidity in the Treasury market. I think that there has been a real question mark about the liquidity uh, around high quality debt. Um, you know, in the last three months that central banks are trying to revolve because, you know, partly because they have screwed the bond market so badly in the previous 12 months. Um, oddly enough, you know, people have said we don't want to play that game anymore. You know, Nosti, I think the, the, the you know, I, I would still, I, you know, I think your point is absolutely brilliant. You know, that, you know, if there's so much confusion, something must be going on that's not that none of us are quite got a handle on and we'll find out later. Um, so I think there's something in that in that background. But I do also believe that, you know, we're underestimating the role of Japanese liquidity here. Three quarters of a trillion dollars. You know, the the EC, the, the, the BOJ has stepped in to try and hold that, you know, 50 basis point line. You know, with Amamiya-san that, you know, I'm sure some people have seen the you know, Japanese press are saying that Amamiya-san has been approached about being the next um, uh, head of the BOJ, um, which would be a cont continuity candidate. Um, you know, that, you know, that's, uh, 
you know, how long can they carry on pumping in that much amount of money? As long as they carry on doing that, these markets go higher. But it's a very, very um, fragile uh, market recovery if it's based purely on Japanese liquidity. Thanks, Savetti. Okay, let's let's move on. Uh, we're going to do KFAB uh, and then Peter. KFAB, the uh, floor is yours. Thanks, George. I actually had a, had a question, uh, one each for Ian and, and Michael. Um, Ian, yours. So my working thesis is that we're, um, particularly in the G7, experienced kind of a classic business cycle where um, inventories are very high at the kind of wholesale and finished good level. And, and that, you know, the long uh, financialization and uh, the long nap of, of uh, moderation and business cycles in the last 40 years in, in the West in particular, we're not used to this anymore. And um, the UK has kind of been on the forefront of that. And that's, you know, they're, they're beginning that liquidation process already. And, and you see the, the implications of what that means to their economy. And, and Germany and France, for example, haven't even really begun that process. So w- what do you think about that thesis as far as more of a classic bullwhip effect centric business cycle where, you know, the main economic uh, forces in the Europe and, and obviously the U.S. might be facing that kind of, um, you know, kind of throwback 70s style um Recession. I'd even take you back further than that, uh, KFAB, you know, which is to, to go back to the 60s where we saw, you know, GDP, I think, go from 10 percent to zero four times in a decade. Um, and it's that kind of uh, volatility that then does tend to undermine valuations. It undermines valuation in bond markets and undermines valuations in equity markets. I have a lot of sympathy with that view um, and that bullwhip effect uh, type argument. And I think you're absolutely right in terms of suggesting that you know, the European uh, economies haven't really started to see that play out yet. I think the one angle that I would add to this, and I think I tried to refer to it earlier, is that actually the greater operational leverage that we've got in the economy now makes that much more profound in terms of its impact on the, um, on the earnings side. But I think the key thing that, that we've been trying to get across to people is the idea that the only reason why margins look so good on average is because the margins of the largest cap stocks are hiding the squeeze on margins in smaller mid caps. And what's happened is that you know, large companies have outsourced both their capex and their labor to the smaller mid cap companies. And, you know, that's where you're going to see these um, these inventory cycles played out most rapidly. It's why we use the NFIB data, you know, extensively, and we worry about what we see in the NFIB data, where you're starting to see those inventory numbers, you know, changing and the, the earnings numbers coming down more aggressively. And, you know, the only question we have is how many will we actually then start to see um, vendor financing as the large caps try to keep their supply chains in one one piece, and suddenly the cash flow of these large cap companies that you think have got great cash flow and strong margins, they that suddenly just uh, disappears, um, you know, as rapidly as uh, as you could possibly imagine, um, as they try and keep their the uh, supply chains afloat. And maybe that does extend the cycle, but you know, it it makes it a uh, a world that I think is, is very dangerous. So I have a lot of sympathy with your view, is, uh, is the bottom line. And I think you will see, um, you know, 
Our models are still suggesting that uh, eurozone economic activity down, you know, another five percent plus, and you know, eurozone earnings down thirty percent this year. And just FYI, a few minutes ago, I did put up. If you look in the next uh, two charts, one showing um, your tweet from the other day, small cap access to liquidity is a tweet from. Uh, today actually and then also the uh, credit uh, the, the senior loan officer thing you mentioned earlier so that's reference Thank to you. support the point you made yeah kfab you, you had a question another question i think for michael hell yeah certainly a biased question and directional given my 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 viewpoint um but last time i spoke with michael on, on one of your spaces george i asked him the same question so i'm gonna let's see if his point of view has, has shifted is um you know, given that I have a recessionary bias, uh, would a severe global recession, uh, do, have you changed your mind in that maybe that filter uh, addressing the term premium issue, meaning that there, there's two ways for the term premium to reconcile itself, um, is my understanding, and, and se severe global recession would be another filter for that that could, could address that issue. Yeah, hi KFab. I, I I can't remember what my answer was last time, so this is a this is a fresh attempt. Um, look, I think that it, I suppose what I would what I would say is that you know I think that uh, we've seen most of the correction uh, in the world economy already. I mean, we've come down on some of the indexes that we're looking at, and we we do uh, you know we look at uh, confirming indicators from things like business sentiment and. Uh, and shipping activity and whatever. A lot of our indexes have come down from sort of, you know, on a zero 100 scale from sort of circa 80 at the peak to levels now of about 40. So there's been some already been some big corrections. And we still think that the world economy may well soften a little bit more over the next couple of months. But I think that, you know, our view is that most of it's kind of already behind us in that regard. I think the, the point about the term premier which you're absolutely right to say that, you know, the term premium would be affected if people think there's a, a, a recession, a, deep, a deeper recession coming, um, for sure. But I think the other things that are affecting the, that are distorting the uh, term premium are just this uh, fact about there is a general shortage of collateral in the system. And that's telling us a lot more about financial fragility than maybe economic fragility. And that's why I think the yield curve is actually such a biased indicator. Uh, I wrote a paper, an academic paper, a few years ago in the Journal of Finance, sorry, the Journal of uh, Fixed Income, which was basically saying, you know, an, a statistical analysis, saying, what does the yield curve slope really tell us? And, and actually, the answer was not much. I mean, it's, it's, as, it's as wrong as often as it's right. Uh, and you've got to start looking very closely at the particular yield curve spread, uh, the maturity spread, to actually pinpoint uh, when recessions occur. And that uh, maturity spread flips around from recession to recession. Um, so it's, it's kind of a very hard gauge. Uh, if, if term premia are so distorted right now, uh, and given the nature of the fixed income markets, it's almost definitely telling us that the yield curve is hugely uh, distorted on the downside. And this big negative um, yield curve spread that people are pointing to and saying it supports big recession, I think is wrong because I think it's, it's purely distorted. Um, so, you know, on all those scores, I, I would uh, I would still say that, you know, maybe we're through most of that uh, downturn. Great. Thanks for the question. Uh, Eli, you had a follow up? 
Hey, George. Uh, yeah, um, about, you know, 10, 10 or 15 minutes ago, um, you guys were talking about, you know, degree of confusion and uncertainty in the market. You know, you got into it a little bit with uh, Gnostic. Um, and I have a feeling that, like, you know, just based off of the price action last week, I think there's a lot of smart money out there that kind of feels, you know, bamboozled by, by the past week on, on a certain level. Um, my question is, you know, just, just given the degree of, of you know, disagreements, should the VIX be at 18 right now? Um, and, and also, um, you know, before anybody says, well, that's just, that's just short-term options, you can get, you know, implied volatilities as low as 18% uh, going out two years on leaps in both EEM and, and SPY. Does anybody have a view on, on where implied volatility should be right now, or is, is it trading too cheap? Yeah, I, 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 I asked a great question, and, and honestly, I studied it a lot lately. I don't pretend to know, and smart people that I pay attention to just have said it doesn't. The market's just been, you know, because of, because of these daily options, the VIX doesn't mean what it used to, and it, it's lost its uh, relevance as an indicator. That's my takeaway from it, but. That's an uninformed opinion. I'm just outsourcing to others that I've read. So I think you can just drive yourself batty. It's, it's, it, there's no information content in the VIX. I, I don't know. I don't know if Ian, Mike, or anybody else on stage has an opinion about you that. Know, I, well, I'll, I'll throw in. I, I think it's just a, a function of that excess, you know, the, the, the high level of liquidity that Michael's talking about at the current time, George. And I think it does. I think we will find that it does have information content. And what does a low VIX always tell you? Is that a sign of good news ahead or bad news ahead? You know, the thing that always happens is that everybody gets bloody complacent, you know, when the VIX is at, you know, below 20 and and then it suddenly spikes up and everybody gets absolutely killed. So uh, I, I, I think, you know, for me, it's an indicator that, that there is the liquidity that Michael's talking about. It has been a liquidity rally and that's validated by the dollar weakening and the VIX being lower. And it's something that I'm very concerned about because as soon as somebody stops that turning that that spigot off, then you know it all goes south in a big way. I think if, George, if I if I could uh, make a make a Please. I mean, what one would be just to uh, come back to something. I think Peter, I think it was Peter who was asking the question about the dollar and weaponization. Uh, I, I uh, you know, FYI, sort of an unashamed plug. I I wrote a book a few years ago about. Uh, weaponization of the dollar uh, called Capital Wars, which was basically about uh, the whole, uh, uh, if you like, interlocking of horns between America and China uh, and all this liquidity stuff as well. So if you're interested, it's, it's around. It was published about three or four years ago, uh, Capital Wars. The other thing to say is that, you know, I, I, I endorse your point about VIX. I think that maybe there is a distortion in there. So look at alternative gauges, look at the move index, which may not be perfect, but it's not a bad index of volatility in the bond markets. And volatility in the bond markets is coming down. Now, the point about fixed income is that, which I've spent a lot, a lot of time, a lot of my time looking at. Um, if you look at the fixed income markets, they're behaving absolutely on cue. Uh, everything that you would expect to see in fixed income is happening, um, you know, right down to the fact that this is the stage of the cycle when volatility drops. If you get a drop in volatility, corporate debt tends to outperform. It is uh, all these things kind of are lining up and they're lining up as well with the idea that the economy uh, basically bottoms uh, in the next three or four months. 
uh, again, I mean, that seems to be spot on. The other thing which I'd throw in is that, you know, uh, in inverted commas here, the world's most important central bank share price seems to be going up last time I looked, uh, and that is JP Morgan. You know, the role of, um, uh, of JP Morgan in financing, uh, particularly in the tri-party repo system, uh, where it's basically backstopped by the Fed, but it does a huge amount of lending uh, into repos. Uh, the fact that, that that bank's share price continued to go up and has broken out and was a very early mover is probably endorsing the fact that this is a uh, liquidity-driven rally. They're the engine. Got it. Makes sense. All right. Um, let's go to uh, Chris. Uh, Chris, uh, please unmute yourself. We got uh, so you. This is Chris Galizia. I ran a growth fund at Fidelity. Uh, grew from 20 million to 7 billion. Started to realize that markets don't make sense anymore. You guys still are, are all talking about how um, how um, people are doing certain things. The point of the movie is two things. First of all, when interest rates go negative, all out. Hang on, Chris, 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 Chris. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Hang on. Um, please, uh, if you have a question, that's great. But uh, please uh, don't don't plug the movie. I'm sorry. I'm sure it's a good movie, but I, 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 I don't just care with we- the movie. Um, let me, so let me make the point when interest rates go negative, all assets are worth infinite. It's just mathematical. One, the value of $1 paid annually is one divided by interest rate, right? So if interest rates are 10%, it's $10. Uh, it, when interest rates go to 1%, it's a hundred dollars. When interest rates go negative, it's, it's infinite. The, in the movie, we say the, uh, when, when, when interest rates go negative, all assets are worth infinite. My coffee is worth infinite. My desk is worth infinite. My chalkboards are worth infinite. Um, does that make sense? And of course, it doesn't make sense because who would ever buy a bond with a negative yield from a country from a company that's uh, from a country that's monetizing its debt? That's my point number one. Point number two: the ecosystem of capitalism has changed. Right? When you remove risk from a system, you change the ecosystem. Right? So if you remove the lions from the savanna, the gazelle population explodes. Passive investing, uh, but then they're competing for scarce water resources and die off. Um, in our movie, we say, to, we say the biggest line in the movie, and, and uh, when when um, is uh, correct when when um, when um, when you remove risk from an ecosystem, it changes the ecosystem. It's basically the main point of that. Um, but what, what you guys aren't understanding is it's not people anymore; it's quants and passive. Eighty percent of the markets, more more than eighty percent of the market, is quants and passive. The stock market no longer predicts anything; it's just a policy tool of the Fed, right? It just reacts to Fed news. When the Fed um, cuts interest rates, stocks go up. When the dollar falls, stocks go up. What, what, what people don't realize is that it's not people and markets anymore. The ecosystem changes. That's the only point I wanted to make. Thanks, thanks for that. Appreciate Good point. It. Well, you know, yeah, I, I know it's, so I, I think that we're still in the, the, the stage where we're, we don't know whether that's true, Chris. And, you know, I, so my narrative would be that, you know, the challenge to that will be when we see the Fed start to cut because and whether they start to cut because they are responding to lower inflation or whether they're doing what they nearly always have to do which is that they're cutting because they don't get a choice because something's got blowing up in the in the marketplaces and you know that you know we'll see the rates coming down and asset prices um, coming down at the same time or certainly risk asset prices coming down at the same time so you know I think but you're absolutely right, which is that because of that increased passiveness, I think there is a real opportunity here because, you know, if you are able to anticipate some of the things that are going to happen, 
you know, whether that is in Michael's world where liquidity has taken off again. And, you know, in my world, when it, where it starts to get squeezed back down again, um, then there are real opportunities because, you know, once the, the bad stuff hits the fan and we see, you know, um, a bad set of earnings numbers for, for a particular company, you know, then, yeah, the, 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 their share price drops not just 3%, but it drops 10% or 15% as the algos kick in behind the, uh, the real money. Yeah, Ian, Ian, can I ask you a question? I want to ask you and Michael a question. Michael Howe. Um, none of us are spring chickens. We've been doing this for a while. Um, going to the uh, changes that the questioner was asking, how have you evolved? How have you changed the way you approach markets, analyze markets, Ian, uh, in the in the decades you've been doing this, so first Ian and then Michael. So you know the thing that the thing that strikes me, George, is that for all the talk about changing structures of markets, and for all the talk about the changing structure of the economy from the con- manufacturing to the consumer, you know what we find is that the you know the number of our models, macro to market models, that still work like they have done for the last 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years. And you know, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for the things that are still staying the same and then trying to say, well, where is, why, is that an- why are the anomalies able to be sustained and how long can they be sustained for? And at the moment, the high level of bond yields relative to what's happening in the real economy is a real anomaly you know and the chart that i put up about term premium and uh, you know just just highlights that there's an anomaly there um you know that, that will get resolved so i i you know i stick to the things that have worked well across multiple cycles across multiple political regimes liquidity regimes and economic regimes and you know there are some of those that still work like the relationship between earnings and trade globally it's worked since the 1970s. Let's stick to it. To it, and uh, so you know that's uh, that's. But maybe I'm becoming a dinosaur, George. <laughs> All of us, Michael. How any 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 thoughts from you? And how you how's your approach changed, if at all, or do you sort of echo Ian's 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 thoughts that you know just try to stay with what, what, what what's worked tried and true. Well, I mean, you know, all the um, all the liquidity models that that we use and we build or that were built. Were built when I was at Salomon Brothers between uh, '86 and uh, and '92. Um, they haven't changed at all in terms of what we do. Exactly the same framework. The only thing that's changed is different countries have uh, basically come and gone. Japan was a big, big player in the '80s and '90s. It's kind of not that important really now. China has come from nowhere to be huge, uh, and so you know the two main central banks worldwide are the Fed and the PBOC. And that's where we spend most of our time looking. Um, but, you know, others are there. But it's not really the models that have changed. It's the geographical importance, I think. Yeah. And and, and, and just one follow-on. And then uh, uh, we're going to have Michael um, Kramer ask a question. But just one follow-up on that, both for, for – for, for, go to Ian first and then Michael. Uh, Ian, um, is this, does this market remind you um, – either because it's similarity or difference to past um, extended bull markets. I mean, one of the, one, one of the charts I was struck by Ian in your presentation that you shared with me was the, uh, 
the duration of this bull run, you were basically, you know, saying set aside COVID because that was sort of a one-off. They fixed it, but this run from you know 2009 or thereabouts, up 500 percent or whatever the numbers are. Um, how does this market differ? Um, uh, this bull run differ from others, and how do, or is it similar? And how does it inform you, Ian? Yeah, I, I think that we're, you know, the, the a number of the indicators that I'm looking at suggest that, you know, we're in that, you know, 99, 2000 type period where, you know, in many ways, the pandemic played the 97 LTCM type role that re-injected the extension of the cycle from, you know, from 98, you know, to, to, to 2000 and took us to relative valuations between equities and bonds that are quite extreme. We've seen some unwinding of that. So I think we're, you know, halfway through 2001, um, maybe even, you know, into to 9-11 type period. But, you know, we're, we're a long way from 2003. And I think that was one of the things that I felt about, you know, all the talk about FTX being the, the, the Lehman Brothers moment for crypto. You know, for me, it was just the beginning of the process. Um, which was much more like New Century when we saw them go bust, um, you know, in 2007. And it was another another 18 months before you really hit the bottom. So I, I think we're I think we're um, we're we're in the we're still in the first third of this of this uh, bear market, as far as I'm concerned, George. And I think in your research, though, just for the benefit of the audience. You had what a three thousand thirty two hundred S and P sort of yeah, uh, and I'm, number. I'm still very comfortable with that. I think that penciling in a round number like two hundred for the earnings, and putting that on the average of the last ten to fifteen years forward EPA forward PEs, which is sixteen times, gives you a number of thirty two hundred. I know uh, Michael Kandrovitz has got the same kind of number as well, so we're not alone on that. But you know. I wouldn't be surprised if at some point this year we trade through on the downside to that number. Um, so I'm still very comfortable with that number at the current time. Awesome. And, and Michael, Michael Howell, um, yourself, um, um, I don't know if you have any, any follow-on thoughts. Sorry, George, what, I didn't get the question. The question. No, 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 no. I mean, we, 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 we spoke before, we both spoke to the point about how models – the, 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 you try to stay with the models that have that have that, that, that have been consistent for you, um, and so I, I guess I mean this, is, this has been excellent actually the to you such such great minds reaching just different outcomes. I mean, you know, as uh, was it Yogi Berra once said, you know, <laughs> make, make, making predictions is difficult, especially about the future. So um, it's it's fascinating. You were two of the best investment minds I know, but coming out with different sort of conclusions is awesome. All right, before we close the room, I want to go to Michael uh, Kramer who. Is that a really good call? Um, uh, he's developed quite a uh, profile on Twitter. Um, absolutely killed it uh, throughout 2022. I gather 2023s, like for Ian and myself, also a little bit more difficult. But Michael, um, you have any uh, questions for um, Michael, Ian Harner? Any comments? And, 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 and you, you, you'll, you'll be the last speaker. Thanks, George. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. Thanks for the kind words. So I, I just had uh, a quick question regarding liquidity, because as you know, I follow uh, Fed balance sheet changes and reserve balances and ECB very closely as well. And those numbers have been coming down. Uh, and I know that the BOJ and the PBOC have been sort of increasing liquidity. I guess my one question is, is you know, my understanding, which isn't, you know, maybe as broad as yours, uh, guys, when it comes to liquidity and the PBOC, 
how does that liquidity actually leave China? Because, you know, it's, it's a fixed currency and it's capital controls. They don't allow, you know, money to leave. Is it, is it, is it, is, is the lever is it through leverage? How does that sort of what is the monetary like sort of transmission mechanism there that that pumping? Because there's clearly a relationship between PBOC, you know, pumping up their balance sheet and let's say the, the move in Hong Kong. You can see it. It's a very clear correlation. But how does it leave that sort of closed currency system? And then the second point I wanted to make is I think you guys are, are leaving out one something that's really important is which is the creation of zero days till expiration and and how that's really distorting the markets on a daily basis. I think that that has really sort of created this almost casino-like atmosphere on a daily basis where the market goes down and, you know, these guys come in and they start buying calls and you can see how the, how that's actually having an impact on the S&P 500 and, and the overall market. So I just wanted to get your thoughts and comments on that. Okay. Look, it may, maybe that's one. Um, if, if I take that first, maybe, um, I think if I didn't say it, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm watching maybe the same movie that Chris is watching here, that um, that liquidity and changing investor composition are kind of important elements in understanding the markets. Um, as regards what's happening specifically in China, I mean, China doesn't have a closed capital account per se. I mean, officially, may well it may well have, but a lot of liquidity seeps out of China. But that's not really the point. Uh, we were really making about China. And that is that China's economic footprint is huge, as we know. And I think that where uh, I would say in humility, where economists maybe misread China was that they, first of all, underestimated the extent of the reopening. Uh, and they were far too downbeat about China prospects on the reopening. And secondly, nobody factored in the fact that the, BO, the uh, PBOC would inject a lot of liquidity back into the system or the scale of it. So I think that that's, that's the surprise. The way that we tend to think of markets, and I'm going to sort of uh, um, you know, say something I, I, uh, I uh, uh, denied earlier on, and that is that if you assume that we're in a PE and E world, uh, I would say that the PE is determined in the US by the Federal Reserve, and I would say the E is determined in China very crudely, by what happens by the PBOC. The PBOC has huge control over the Chinese economy, at uh, least we forget. And that's really what's driven commodity markets and cyclical stocks or cyclical areas, particularly looking at the DAX in Germany, a lot higher. Now, the last thing I'd say is that I think that, we're, that I, I don't believe there's a financial crisis bubbling. And one of the reasons is I think the Federal Reserve has got a lot greater handle on how the financial system is working right now um, than it did in prior years. Famous last words, of course. But one of the things the Federal Reserve is trying to do is to fix the bond market. Now, that may be no great surprise. But I think the point here is that the repo market or uh, those associated derivative type markets are so important now for liquidity, liquidity generation, and effectively the whole financial structure, that the only way the Federal Reserve can really control them properly uh, is by operating directly in the bond market. And that's why I think that there's been this struggle or urgency to try and make sure that the integrity of the bond market uh, has been maintained. And that's why I would say, you know, there, I'm not going to say there's a conspiracy going on here, but I would just say, you know, don't take our data as gospel. Take a look at the Bloomberg um, U.S. Treasury 
market liquidity index. And you'll see that that, if I'm unless I'm mistaken, bottomed around the time of the UK guilt crisis and has moved up decisively since then. And I think that market liquidity has been a result of more funding liquidity being shoved into the system to try and do it. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but there's a narrative that seems to be working here. Right. Thanks for that, Michael. Really good and, question. Ian, you want to? Yeah, so I, Michael, some, you know, uh, my business partner, David Bowers, uh, and I, you know, have a phrase that we say, things we know to be true but cannot prove. Um, and I think that would be, you know, how I feel about Chinese credit. So, I, you know, I, I think that for me, I posted a, a, a chart on Twitter um, in response to your question, which is I think that it actually works through the dollar. So I think that if the Chinese authorities create a lot of domestic liquidity, what they are generally trying to do is to encourage Chinese companies to um, use Chinese liquidity rather than dollar liquidity. And so they're reducing the ex-ante demand for dollar from Chinese companies, um, and that creates an ex-ante supply, excess supply of dollars in the marketplace, which drives the dollar down when you have, the, um, when you have that pickup in uh, Chinese credit impulse. So you know, even though it's a closed system, because you are reducing the demand for global global dollar demand by doing that, that's how I that's how I think it probably works. So that's my that's my uh, cat handed explanation. But can I prove it? Absolutely not. But the chart looks pretty good. Thanks. Great question, Michael. All right, so we're at the two hour mark. Um, try as I may, um, room went longer than I thought. But that's because we have two fantastic speakers here. I want to thank Ian. Uh, and Michael, this has been tremendous. It's a real treat to uh, for, you, for us to, 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 to hear your wisdom. Um, you know, certainly starting off the year in a very interesting way. I'm sure there'll be plenty more surprises. Um, I think we're going to see volatility. I think the market's going to confound all of us. But anyway, um, so again, th thanks, Michael. This has been awesome. Uh, we'll do it from uh, uh, later this week. Um, any closing comments, Michael or Arian? Well, I, I was just going to say, George, that the one thing that all of us have learned, uh, and there are many very experienced and excellent investors on your uh, spaces, is that the, the thing that markets always te teach us is humility. Um, you know, and it's, it's how, how, how can we manage to make it get, get it wrong this time is, is always the lesson that we learn. Um, but, you know, we, we always try and make sure that we're on the right side of the 50 percent. And, uh, and that's the, uh, the key to the game here. But uh, keep on learning every day. That's the, uh, that's the yeah. thing we need to do. And thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Mark is never stand still. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for yeah. letting yeah. us share our thoughts. But, yep. Thank, thanks, guys, and thanks, Ian. Thanks, Ian. I've been served up a huge dose of humility myself this year, so amen. All right, listen, this has been great. We'll do this again before too long. Thanks, everyone. Good night. Take care. Thanks, thanks very much, George. Good night. Bye. Cheers. Bye -bye. Bye -bye. Bye -bye. Thanks, George.